0: Thank you, Gene, for that medley. Um, I think I uh, heard a little rendition of Birds of the Wilderness in there, which I haven't heard since I was a little boy in church. So thank you for sharing with us today and for stepping up into Sarah's spot for the day on the organ as well. So thank you, Gene. Before I begin, I want to just uh, thank many of you who this morning have already asked me about my dad and how he's doing. Uh, let me just briefly bring you up to speed. He fell at home a week ago Saturday and broke his hip and had surgery last Sunday morning, which was successful. They repaired it. Uh, But he's still in the hospital because uh, we are fighting with the insurance company who, to this point, are are denying him rehab access. So we're fighting. We should get a resolution sometime this week. So thank you for your continued prayers and concern for him as well. I want to begin today with another little fun quiz. Um, This one is called, How Well Do You Know Your Church? Okay. Some of the questions are multiple choice. Some are not, just holler out. Uh, but the first question, and these, are, these should be pretty easy for you, but I'm going to be watching you to see. Question number one, in what year was this church first established? Multiple choice. A, 1962, B, 1951, C, 1894, or D, 92 AD? <laughs> the answer is C, 1894, which means we are now 127 years old. Not all of us, but we are collectively 127 years old. Okay, question number two. What was our original name as a church? Just holler it out. Oh, good. I was expecting to hear people yell out First Baptist Church of Geneva, but that would be incorrect. Our original name was the First Swedish Baptist Church of Geneva. Uh, Third, how many campuses does Chapel Street have? A two, B, three, C, three, soon to be four? Kind of a trick question. The answer is C, three, soon to be four. We have South Street, where we are right now. We have Mill Creek, and we have Kesslinger. Question number four is related. Where will our next campus be? Now don't holler it out, okay? A, Elburn, B, North Aurora, C, Green Bay. To save some of those Packer fans, right? <laughs> Answer is B, B, North Aurora. In fact, we were planning to launch this fall. Uh, that's the campus before it's, been, it's being renovated right now. And that group, the core group of that congregation is meeting for worship today down at the west end of this building, and they are the ones who provided our coffee this morning. Question number five. How many worship services do we currently have every weekend as a church? Just holler out a number. It's hard because it changes all the time. The answer right now is five. We have two at Kesslinger, two at Mill Creek, and one right here. Soon there'll be another one in North Aurora. Question number six, what is our annual budget as a church? <laughs> <laughs> okay, anybody have a number? Will be. There you go. Good question. There you go. Uh, Our budget that we're going to vote on at our annual meeting is going to be $6 million for the coming year. And I was marveling at that, because I think the first year I became senior pastor, our entire church budget was under $300,000. Kind of amazing when you think about it. Number seven, how many chandeliers are in the sanctuary? Don't look. (laughs) How many chandeliers? (laughs) Okay, I actually got this wrong. Originally, there were 12. There there were two up here until we remodeled the front. Now there are 10 chandeliers in the sanctuary. I used to have kids in youth ministry who knew how many bulbs there were because they got bored during sermons and they would count stuff. Okay, question number eight, almost done. How many doors do you think are in this entire South Street facility? How many doors? 53? 53? Anybody else have a guess? Over 130 doors in this building. How many exterior doors? Of those 130, we have eight exterior doors to this facility. And this is my key ring here. This, one of these things. This is the key to all the exterior doors at this building. In fact, to all the exterior doors in all of our facilities. We're in the process now of changing over to kind of this uh, wireless sort of uh, entry to everything. But for right now, this physical key still works, which means I have the authority, ability to open all the doors. But what's really interesting is that at this facility and our others, there's another key. It's hanging on top, and you can actually use that key to lock the doors open. And I like that image for what we're going to talk about today because it's highly symbolic. That key that, locks, the unlock, this key that unlocks the door and the key that locks the doors open are highly symbolic because today we look at an ancient church that has often been called the church of the open door. Now we're in our Revelation series, the seven churches of Revelation, and we've learned that Jesus is speaking, writing actually, to seven real historic churches in first century Roman Empire. But he's also speaking to the church, in general, he's speaking to even us here at Chapel Street in 21st century America. And so far, we've looked at the letter to the church in Ephesus. You can see this map here, which shows you the relative locations of these churches, of what we now call Turkey. We've looked at the church in Ephesus, uh, where Jesus said, you've lost your first love. We looked at the church in Smyrna a church that was faithful under persecution. We looked at the church in Pergamum, confused by the false teaching of Balaam and, and the Nicolaitans. We looked at the church in Thyatira, who tolerated a false prophetess called Jezebel. We looked at, last week at the church in Sardis, a church that Jesus said had a good reputation but was spiritually dead. Now today, we look at the sixth church on the list, the church in Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania with the Liberty Bell and Rocky and all that, but rather a city in first century Asia Minor, what we now call Turkey. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, uh, beginning with verse 7. So let me start to read this passage to you, and then we'll break it down. This is, these are the words of the Lord, Revelation 3, beginning of verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, I'm going to pause right there, give you some background on this ancient city called Philadelphia. Philadelphia was established originally by a guy named King Attalus II of Pergamon in the 2nd century BC, so a very old city. And he named it in honor of his older brother, a man named Eumenes. And so the the word Philadelphia literally means in Greek, the city of one who loves his brother kind of a cool background when you think about it. Now, the city was actually renamed a couple of times in the early uh, centuries, once uh, renamed to Neo-Caesarea in honor of Emperor Tiberius, and another time to Flavia in in honor of Emperor Vespasian, each time after the Roman emperor had offered financial help as the city recovered from an earthquake. This becomes significant later when we talk about the letter Jesus is writing. Two more small historical points of interest that are significant. First, uh, Philadelphia was located, as I mentioned, in a region that was known and and, and vulnerable to earthquakes. And the city has suffered several times uh, severe destruction. And secondly, it's the easternmost city. If you remember the map, it was the easternmost city of the seven cities we're looking at. And so it was known as the gateway to the east part of the Roman Empire. So with those uh, as background, we continue with verse 7. And to the angel of the church... Uh, in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Now this is a bit new. Remember in each of the letters, Jesus identifies himself usually by one of the parts of the vision John had in chapter one. Sharp sword, eyes like fire, and so forth. But these are all new. They do not appear in that vision. So let's take a look and see what Jesus is actually saying about himself. He says. The holy one, the true one, those are descriptions made only of God. So Jesus is identifying himself as divine, as having the authority of God, who has the key of David. Now this is the image I want you to focus on. This refers back to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 22, when he writes, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah." Now, who was Eliakim? Eliakim was uh, the right-hand man of King Hezekiah of Israel. Now, in those days, when the king uh, bestowed his authority on that person, he carried the full weight, of the full authority of the king, and that's what's significant. And then Isaiah continues, And I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. So when Jesus says that he holds the keys of the house of David, he's referring very clearly to his own messianic divine authority. He's saying he is the true Messiah. He alone has the keys to the kingdom of Of heaven. Verse 8, I know your works. Remember, Jesus is the one who walks among the lampstands. He's the one who walks among his church. He knows his church. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown." To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now the first thing we notice here, or should notice, is that there is no confrontation. There is no sense of condemnation for this church. Imagine those Christians uh, in Philadelphia in this small church, and they get this letter. Revelation is a letter that was sent out as a circular to the churches. So they have read the letters that have preceded the letter to them. And they've seen that in many cases, Jesus is confronting something that needs to be changed in the church. And he's calling churches to repentance. He confronts Ephesus for having lost their first love. He confronts Pergamum for tolerating the teaching of Balaam and and, uh, the Nicolaitans. He confronts the church in Thyatira for tolerating Jezebel. He tells the church in Sardis, you look good on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. So maybe they were reading, expecting, oh, here comes the letter to us. What what is he going to correct? What is he going to confront in our fellowship? And there's nothing. There's no confrontation. There's no call to repentance. There is just affirmation. And that's the first thing we see today is Jesus gives them affirmation. Uh, For a short time when I was um, in college, Uh, my father served as an associate pastor at a large church in Orlando, Florida. Um, It was uh, the largest church that our family really had ever seen at that time. It's not unusual now, but then it was relatively unusual for a church to be big enough to have its own gym, gymnasium. And since my brother and I played lots of basketball in those days, we were excited. We could go into a gym anytime we wanted. So, That summer when I was home from school, uh, we would uh, often play in local high schools, and when we couldn't play in those high schools. We just invited my brother's teammates to come over with us and play at the church. We asked my dad, can we do that? He said, sure, so we would play in the church gym. It was great. We played there three or four times, uh, had a good time, uh, but the, the, the last time we played in the church gym, we noticed that the senior pastor of the church was standing in the doorway of the gym just watching for a while. The next day we came back, And the gym doors of the church were chained shut. We went to my dad, I went to my dad to try to get the key, and he said, sorry, guys, you can't play in there anymore. I said, why not? He said, well, the the pastor says the church gym is only for members. Now, what I haven't said yet is that several of my brother's friends and high school teammates were black. And it was nothing to us. They were our friends. We played with them. But we always thought that the pastor made that decision based on something other than church membership. And from that day on, we thought of that church as a church of the chain-shut doors. My dad left that church within a year for some obvious reasons. And here we see the church, Jesus calling the church in Philadelphia to be a different kind of church. Verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie behold i will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that i have loved you jesus begins here with an affirmation of an open door now the image of an open door has multiple meanings here i think first i think it refers to an open door to the kingdom An open door to salvation through Jesus. In John chapter 10, we read, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, and the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. So Jesus is simply saying here, I am the door. I hold the key to the doorway of the kingdom of God. By my death, your sins are forgiven. By my resurrection, you have the promise of new life. By my spirit, your heart is made new again. You are reborn. So the church, therefore, in Jesus' eyes, is to be an open door through which all can come to find the good news of salvation. The doors of the church, in Jesus' eyes, are to be locked open. Secondly, we see it's also an open door to witness in the world. The location of Philadelphia, as I said, was the easternmost location of the seven cities. And it gave this this little church an opportunity for ministry out into the eastern regions of the Roman Empire. Now, throughout the New Testament, if we pay attention, the image of the open door is often used as an invitation to an opportunity for gospel ministry. The apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 16 says, "But I will stay on in Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door of effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me." Again in Colossians 4, he says, "At the same time, pray also for us that God may open for us a door to the world for the word to declare the mystery of Christ." So, the doors of the church are always to be open. And they're open in two ways when you think about it. They're open for people who need Jesus to come in and find him and hear the gospel preached. And they're also open for those of us who know him to go out into the world in witness. Next he says, you have little power. You have little power. Uh, Two years ago, summer of 2019, I had the chance to travel. To, to visit some of our ministry partners in other parts of the world, Turkey, Dubai, and Africa. And while I was in Uganda, uh, I had a chance to preach at a little small church outside in Tebi. Uh, the church was at the end of a long, mile-long or so muddy dirt, uh, dirt road, and then this walkway to get to that church, and that's, that's the building of the church. Um, there were about 50 people uh, in the building that day, just a simple room with a few uh, simple... Wood slat uh, benches and a couple of, and several plastic chairs. There were no children's classrooms. There was no air conditioning. There were no screens. Uh, there were no, uh, no bathrooms in the building, just a latrine out back. Uh, the pastor is a man named Fred Wangwa. There's a picture of him here. He's in the white shirt. Uh, and I'm still f- uh, friends with him. We email back and forth. Uh, his church is small, poor, unknown and utterly insignificant in the world's eyes. But after that service that day, we went to a muddy river, and he allowed me to help him baptize three brand-new believers. And from that little church, more than 10 congregations have begun, and Pastor Fred trained all 10 of those pastors, and, and they've been planted, including, most recently, a church made up of entirely formerly Muslim converts to the Good News. And I couldn't help but remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he writes, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Jesus is saying you have little power. The world knows nothing about you. You don't have respect in the eyes of the world. You feel like you are powerless yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Now, as we've studied these letters to these churches, this is one of the things that stands out the most. This is one of the things that Jesus uh, most often uh, commends as being important to him, that they have been faithful to his word and have not denied his name. And then Jesus says something that every time I read it, just jumps off the page at me. I wonder if you saw it. Verse 9, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. You hear that? I have loved you. Now, a couple things here about this, this portion. First, he refers to the synagogue of Satan. Now, that's a dramatic, very strong image or phrase. And it's referring to an ongoing conflict, evidently, uh, with those who had rejected Christ as Messiah, those who rejected the gospel, uh, those who were often entangled uh, with the, uh, the culture of emperor worship, those who taught that God could never love or accept Gentiles into his family. And Jesus says they're wrong. They are wrong. They are not speaking the truth. Because I have the key. I have the key to the kingdom. I am the open door. And then he says, I will make them come and bow before your feet. Now, what does that mean? That sounds like uh, I'm going to humiliate them before you. Make them grovel before you. But that's not exactly what's being said here. It's not so much a statement of humiliation for their enemies, but rather uh, an eventual acknowledgement of the fact that Jesus is, in fact, Lord. Remember what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 when he writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What he's saying there is, eventually, someday, even those who do not believe, Even those who have rejected him will have no choice but to bow their knee before the one who is sovereign over all things, before the one who holds the key to the kingdom of God. Sooner or later he's saying, They will see, I have loved you. I think what Jesus is saying here is that what makes us part of God's family is not ethnicity or family history, or power, or reputation, the thing that makes us part of God's family is that Jesus has loved us. Do you know that? Do you know how much you are loved by Jesus? He's saying that, that when we say we want people to experience grace, that's the first thing we say, Here at Chapel Street, experience grace, grow in faith, make an impact where you are. But to experience grace means to understand and experience the love of Christ. To know that Jesus loves you. And it's the love of Jesus that saves you. It's the love of Jesus that forgives you. It's the love of Jesus who tells you who you are. It's the love of Jesus that gives meaning and hope. Jesus is saying to this small, powerless, insignificant church, and he's saying to us, You are not neglected. You are not forgotten. You are not alone. I have loved you. And through my love, you have great power. Jesus affirms the church in Philadelphia. Secondly, we see he offers them encouragement. Encouragement. Let me ask you a question. Olympics are finally over, actually over last Sunday. Um, But of all the Olympic events that maybe you watched or didn't watch. You know, swimming, diving, pole vaulting, the marathon, gymnastics, pommel horse. By the way, you know where pommel horse comes from? I was, bored, I was watching one night, so what's the history of that? Who, who decided that was a thing? Well, it comes from the, from, uh, the B.C. era when uh, soldiers were being trained for battle they had competitions for how they would, for, for horseback being able to ride horses in battle. So that's the origination of the pommel horse. I don't know if they did the whole leg thing and stuff, but that, that's the origination of pommel horse. That's information you might need to know. But of all the events, which event would you most like to win a gold medal in, personally? If you could win a gold medal in any of those events in the Olympics, which would you want to win a gold medal in? You know, 100 meter dash. You want to be the fastest person in the world, maybe diving off a 33-foot-high platform? I don't think so. Not for me. For me, I would choose the decathlon. Anybody with me? Decathlon, right? Because the decathlon is 10 track and field events over two days, and a gold medal in the decathlon would make you arguably the greatest athlete in the world. I'd like that, I think. Some of you may know the story of Jim Thorpe. Jim Thorpe was a Native American who, uh, in 1912 at the Olympic Games in Stockholm, Sweden, won both the pentathlon, which is five events in track and field, and the decathlon, which is ten events. So out of 15 events, he outright won eight of them and set a record that held for almost three decades. Did that in 1912. And when he was presented uh, with the gold medal by King Gustav V of Sweden, the king said to him, you, sir, are the greatest athlete in the world and he was he was also the best college football player in america at the time he went on to play professional baseball professional football and a little bit of professional basketball but the following year in 1913 and some of you know this story jim thorpe was found to have been in violation of a very strict code of amateurism that was in place at the time because he had played minor league baseball prior to the olympics for two dollars a day he was stripped of all his olympic medals And they were only restored to him 30 years after his death. Verse 10 in Revelation because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now, three things here. First, he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Now, there are several main interpretations of this phrase. Uh, Many believe that it's a reference to what some theologians call the Great Tribulation. That is a period of intense suffering that will cover the entire world lasting seven years and ending with the second coming of Christ. Many of us in this room probably grew up with that interpretation, or we've at least heard that interpretation. Uh, Some say believers will be taken out of the world in what is called the rapture of the church prior to that time of tribulation. That's called the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. And so Christians will avoid that suffering. Now, that that may be so. I'm not here to tell you one way or the other. It's a complicated uh, theological theory. But the problem with that particular view is that many Christians have already suffered tribulation. Even two of the churches we've looked at so far suffered great suffering. And a man named Antipas was martyred, killed for his faithfulness to Christ, Already, we saw that in the book of Revelation. Both Peter and Paul were executed by Roman emperors. Jesus himself says, in this world, you will have trouble. So if we take this view, what do we say to our brothers and sisters all over the world who suffer today? You're not really suffering. We're going to escape. What are we going to say? It's problematic. Some say believers will experience only part of the tribulation. This is called the mid-tribulation rapture of the church. Still others believe that the biblical references, especially in Revelation to the seven years of tribulation, are symbolic of the suffering of God's people throughout the centuries. And that's what I tend to think if you push me up against the wall. But the most important thing to see here is that Jesus offers his protection. The protection he offers here is not that we will necessarily escape all suffering, but rather that suffering will not have the final word. In John 17, in what's called the high priestly prayer, when Jesus prays for his church, for us, he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So Jesus prays for us that no matter what we face in this life, the evil one would not be able to rip us away, to tear us out of his hand. Secondly, he says, I am coming soon, hold fast to what you have. Now, if I had to summarize the entire book of Revelation, the entire magnificent, mysterious book of Revelation, I would summarize it in this sentence. He says, I am coming soon, hold on. Hold on. I'm coming soon. Jesus is encouraging the church in Philadelphia, and I believe encouraging us as well, by saying to us, I know it's hard sometimes. I know it looks like sin and evil are winning the day. I know you feel powerless in the face of an increasingly hostile culture. But hang on. Hang on. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have. Hold on to the gospel. Hold on to my death and resurrection. Hold on to my word. Hold on to the promise of your salvation. And I will hold on to you because I have loved you. Third, he says, so that no one may take your crown. Now, throughout the New Testament, we see the promise of eternal crowns given to believers. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about an imperishable crown. Then in 1 Thessalonians, he talks about the crown of rejoicing. Then in 2 Timothy, he talks about the crown of righteousness. In In 1 Peter 5, we're promised the crown of glory. And in Revelation 2, we already saw the promise of the crown of life. What's the crown all about? The crowns are symbolic of victory and reward. Kind of like a gold medal victory over sin, Uh, Christ's eventual victory over all injustice and evil, victory over death itself. So Jesus is saying, hold on, hold on. Nothing and no one will ever take away your crown. So Jesus affirms, Jesus encourages, and then he makes a promise. So the third part of today is promise. Verse 12, The one who conquers, that means the one who holds fast, the one who receives my victory, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here are the promises. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Two things about this promise. Philadelphia, as I mentioned, was located in a region known for earthquakes. And some of those ancient buildings, uh, the temples especially, were actually engineered. This is the ancient world now. But they engineered these buildings to withstand a certain level of earthquake. I could give you details about that, but I'm not an engineer. I wouldn't be able to explain it rightly. Which it made certain buildings, particularly the the pagan temples, the safest places in the city in case of an earthquake. Because they were built to withstand so Jesus here is using an image of security. He's saying, I will provide for you, even when the whole world is crumbling around you, a place of safety and security. It was also an ancient custom at that time to sometimes inscribe the names of very famous people or important people onto these great pillars that held up these temples, kind of like an ancient hall of fame. Uh, this is actually part of an ancient pillar that was part of a temple of Zeus. You can see on there, there are names inscribed on that that pillar. So Jesus is promising this church, these people of little power and influence, the great significance of being part of his eternal kingdom. Not only a place of safety, but a place of honor, a place in his temple, the temple of God. He says, I will write on him the name, the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my own new name. We've seen this before in these letters. He's talking about our identity in Christ. He's saying, I have loved you. I know you. I set before you a great open door. And when you walk through it, and when you allow others to walk through it, you and they become new people. You become a new person by my name. You become part of a new family, you become citizens in a new city. And no one will ever take away your crown, he says. Uh, Many of you know uh, that back in my college days, as I mentioned earlier, I played lots of basketball. Um, I have two hip replacements to show for it. All these years later, all the running and jumping just wore them out. doctor told me when I was uh, in my 40s, I had the hips of an 80-year-old man. And as I began my senior year that year um, in 1978, We were all excited as a team because we were told we were going to get brand new practice uniforms. And that wasn't a big deal. We would get new practice uniforms. But what was a big deal is we heard that our our new practice shorts were going to be monogrammed with our names stitched on them. Now that may not sound like a big deal to you, but to us it was a really big deal. We'd seen guys from other schools uh, had these kind of shorts, and we envied them because that that, like you were really arrived as a college player if you had your name on your shorts, right? So we were all excited. So we get to school, and sure enough, the day came when we got our new practice gear, and I opened my my bag up to get my new shorts out, and I looked at it, and there was my name. (laughs) C-O-F-F-E-E. Not C-O-F-F-E-Y. C-O-F-F-E-E. Like Maxwell House. (laughs) Now, I was used to having my name misspelled, that way most of my life because it would happen and I understood people would just would just you know, uh, go on automatic pilot and write like coffee coffee instead of coffee coffee. Yeah, so I understood that. But this was different because I'd been on the team for three years by this point. I'd been in the program for three years. I, did, I ran all the sprints. I lifted all the weights. I showed up every day for practice for three whole years and I got my name wrong. Now here's the thing. I wasn't a star player. I never started a game my whole college career. I was a bench guy, a second teamer. So what I saw, when I saw my name is spelled, what I saw was you are unimportant to us. You are insignificant. In fact, so insignificant, we don't really care to get your name right. But here's what I see in this letter. Jesus is saying that he knows my name. He knows your name. He never forgets your name. And he always gets it right. Imagine what this meant to this city, the people of this city of Philadelphia. Imagine what it meant to that little church who felt powerless in the first century, surrounded by the Roman Empire, told they were not even welcome in the temple of God, told that God could never love you because you're Gentiles, because you believe this thing called Christ. Imagine what it meant to them to know that Jesus never forgets Their name. Imagine imagine what it means to my friend Pastor Fred in Uganda. Day after day, week after week, year after year, serving and preaching the word and trying to reach his world with no resources, with nobody who knows what he's doing. Imagine what it means that Jesus knows Pastor Fred by name. What does it mean for us right here at Chapel Street? 21st century North America. Imagine what it would mean for everyone who walks through our doors to learn that Jesus knows your name. And he has a place of eternal security and joy and no one will ever take away your crown. Jesus is saying he holds the key. And he wants to lock the doors open to his kingdom. And may we be a church of the open door. Would you bow your heads with me as I close? Lord God, we thank you today for your word. We've been studying this letter for weeks now, and we thank you for this particular ancient church in Philadelphia. People will never meet until heaven someday who felt small and powerless, who wondered at times if they mattered at all. Thank you that they mattered to you. You knew them and loved them. And set before them a great open door and promise them a place of honor in your eternal kingdom. Remind us that you know us as well. Remind us that we too share in your promise and we ask you to make us a church of open doors. It's in your name I pray. Amen.